Uh, I've got a Bible. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 tonight. Acts chapter 20, uh, great time ahead of us, I believe, in God's Word um, as we kind of spend some time looking back and then get ready for what is going to be a really incredible story. Acts 21 through the rest of the book is going to be really about Paul's personal journey. Um, over the last 20 chapters, it's really been about the church's journey as a whole. Um, and the next few, the next seven chapters are about Paul's um, personal journey to get to a very specific place that's going to take the church to an even greater level. So this kind of is an end in some ways, but also um, kind of a, a way of looking forward um, and passing the torch to the next generation, which I think, again, will be very appropriate for us tonight in our church and where we're at and in the season that we've been in. Uh, and believe it or not, tonight marks installment number 41 in our time together studying Acts. Now, I'm sure you remember some of them. It's okay if you don't remember all 40 of them. Um, they are available uh, to, to, to go back and listen. I had to go back and I, I looked through my notes and I thought, this can't be number 41. And I went back and looked at the archive and sure enough, yeah, there's, there's one of them got lost in the recording. So there's not there's 39, but nonetheless, um, this is number 41, which is pretty incredible um, that uh, we have spent such a, a, a very um, a thorough time in God's word. Um, and I believe we've learned a lot um, and we've still got nine lengthy chapters left to study. So um, we're not done yet. Now, it, it won't be an even 52 weeks because we took some weeks off, but uh, uh, next week, next Sunday marks one year since we began this study. So, I mean, 40, 40 studies in 52 weeks, is we didn't take many times, many weeks off, did we? Um, and of course, some of those were holidays and some of those were special services, Easter and everything else and vacation time. So uh, to, to cover 40, to have 40 studies and acts across the last year, uh, we were covering a lot of ground and getting a lot done. Um, so we will begin year two of studying the book of Acts. I promise you we won't be in this book for another year, um, but I would not be surprised if the next eight chapters um, don't take us a little while because they're pretty lengthy and, and there's a lot of important stuff that's going to be ahead of us. Um, but we called this series from the very beginning when we began studying the book of Acts, which is also called the Acts of the Apostles. When we began this series, we gave it the simple title, The Church, uh, because there's really no better way to summarize what this book is all about, to whom it is written to, and, and who it's written about. And, and again, that is the church. Um, Acts tells the story of the church in its earliest days, becoming the movement of God that Jesus predicted it would be, showing us how it got organized and galvanized around the gospel and the mission of God. If you want to know what who the church is, what the church is all about and what the church's mission is, look no further than the book of Acts. It's explicitly stated from front to back. Now, back in those early messages, uh, if you'll remember, we gave a special emphasis to the idea that Acts defines the church as God's movement. Acts defines the church as the movement of God and, and, and more than just an organization, more than just a religious institution, the church began and was meant to remain as the movement of God. Notice the movement, not just a movement, but the movement of the one and only God. The church began and was meant to remain as the movement of God and of his people. God through his people and God through his people is again the movement of God from heaven to earth through people. The church is, 
was, is, and always will be the movement of God. Now, early on, the emphasis in Acts was how God moved from heaven to earth through the person of Jesus. Then he moved sin and death out of the way with the cross and the resurrection. And he moved from heaven to earth again by the Holy Spirit, filling hearts and lives with his presence. And Acts is, would tell the story of him moving throughout all the earth, by and in the disciples who received his promise and power. So again, I don't think there's a better way to describe the church than as the movement of God from heaven to earth, spirit through us, in us, by us. The spirit of God moves in our midst and moves through our lives that we might fulfill the mission that God set in motion 2,000 years ago. And, and, and again, way back very first week when we discuss, when we kind of define the church as the movement of God, not just an institution, not just an establishment, not just a monument, but the movement of God. We studied this from Acts 1 verse 1. Luke introduces the book like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach Comma. Now he's referring to the gospel of Luke. He says, Theophilus, I wrote to you volume one of what Jesus began to do and teach. And now I'm writing volume two about what continued from his ministry. But Jesus is ascending to heaven in chapter one. It's not about just what Jesus is doing. It's about what he's doing through his church, about what his church is doing, his body is doing. And notice this, and we talk about this extensively. The Bible is intentional with every stroke of the pen. Every author, as God inspired them, nothing is coincidental, nothing is accidental. Everything is intentional. So when we read there, all that Jesus began to do and teach, comma, that's introducing us to this book of Acts that is the continuation of what Jesus began to do, but it hasn't ended because the church is continued ever since, and we are still part of this movement. So what Jesus began to do is exclusively continued through the movement of the local church. The local church is the vessel through which God moves and by which his word spreads. The local church is his sanctioned, is his blessed means by which, the, by which he moves and by which his word spreads. Does that mean that God only works on Sundays at 11 or Wednesdays at seven? No, that's not what that means. But it means through the movement of the church, through the organized gathering of his people, through the you know, coming together of the saints of God, that is how God moves and that is his choice by which he spreads his word and moves throughout this world. The book of Acts proves that. The book of Acts teaches that. But again, it's not just about a time and place. Acts makes it clear that God does not move and the word does not spread uh, through a concentrated local gathering. Next slide. Not always through a concentrated service at a time and place, but through the committed service of disciples. You see the distinction there, that it's not about a time and place. That's the, not on the only place that God moves, but it's through the service, the hands and feet working of his disciples. That is how he moves. That is how he works. That is how he spreads his gospel. Those of us that work in and out of the church. Now, if you've been with us for these 40 messages from this book, you've seen how the church grew 
and expanded its reach from Jerusalem, from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as it were, uh, making inroads into Greece. Eventually, they're going to make it to Rome. And, and, and it's wild that the church got organized and off the ground through basically two local places, through two local gatherings. That In the early days, there were just two. Jerusalem and Antioch. And it wasn't until Acts 11, that was 10 years in, that there was Antioch. They were working out of one place for the first 10 years. Then they planted Antioch and they were working out of that place for the next 10 years. So I think it's, it should not be understated the remarkable amount of work they were able to get done through these two headquarters. Now, I think we're so, we're so oversaturated with what a church is and we drive down the road and we see dozens of churches and we look at signs that tell us what they believe and some that don't tell us what they believe and we, we talk about all the different kinds and denominations and traditions and I think that kind of waters down just what was accomplished in the book of Acts when there were literally just two local gatherings. But it was through those two local gatherings that the whole world, as it was known at that time, the whole world heard the gospel. The mission teams from those churches did not just remain in their pews and in their, in their local you know, settings. They moved and they got things done. Now, uh, of course, as time passes, more plants were established from Acts 13 to 19. We've seen churches planted in places like Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Derby, Iconium, uh, uh, Lystra, um, Berea. Uh, and again, we've, we're gonna see more planted uh, before the book is over. But tonight... As we study Acts 20, some of the things that we've covered are going to come back to the surface as the chapter is sort of an amalgamation of all that's taken place before, and it's building up to something even beyond this. Uh, Acts 20 is going to offer reflection and reaffirmation on the impact and the importance of the church. So Acts 20 is kind of a calm before the storm because what's going to happen in the next few chapters is a pretty you know, rocky road for Paul and, and for those that are with him. Uh, so as we cover this chapter with it coming just shy of us having spent a year in Acts, I felt like it was a good time. It would be helpful to draw out the themes that are highlighted in this text to spend tonight looking back but also looking forward. Uh, again, Acts 20 is that calm before the storm as our main character, Paul, gonna, is going to go to Jerusalem and then eventually make his way to Rome through the next few chapters and what the story tells. So this chapter marks an end to a remarkable 10-year run uh, that we've seen the church well-established in Turkey uh, begin to sprout in Southeast Europe. Paul, 10 years prior to Acts 20, began his first missionary journey back in Acts 13. And all these years later, he has spread the gospel through an entire country and even into Europe and, and into some of the regions there. Um, now, again, this is coming off his departure from Ephesus. Now, last week, if you were with us, remember, Paul's time at Ephesus was lengthy, but it was not easy. And it ended in a mess. Uh, remember last week, there was that mob that rose up against him because of the adultery, uh, the idols that were being destroyed and the people that were you know, renouncing their, uh, their pagan ways and the, the, the people of Ephesus rose up to destroy Paul and destroy the church and work against it and, and try to kill him and attack him. And, and of course, he narrowly escaped death after being attacked by that mob. So Acts 20 picks up right after all of that. So look at verse 1 and 2 and we'll kind of get the scene that uh, we'll kind of get a picture of what's going on right after that. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, 
and departed to go to Macedonia. And that word embrace can also mean encouraged. He spent time with them. He worshiped with them. He fellowship with them. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. Now, Macedonia refers to those churches in Acts 16, Philippi, Lystra, uh, back in Acts 17, Thessalonica, Derby, or, or not Derby, but, but, but Berea. So those churches that Paul established right before he went to Corinth. So Paul revisits those churches and he spends time in each of those local assemblies encouraging them, being encouraged. That, that Again, you embrace them. It's a speak, speaking of, of, of spending time with, um, being encouraged by them, encouraging them. And, and I want to talk a little bit tonight uh, about the trend that we see throughout Acts. Again and again in Acts, we see that the apostles were always tethered to their brothers and sisters in Christ the local church, that we always see Paul, others as well, we see the apostles always coming back to the bodies of Christ that they planted and that they established. They never got too big. They never got too independent. They never ascended to some spiritual plane where they no longer needed the assembly. They were always tethered. They were always coming back to. They were always anchored in the local church. They were always dependent on and always returning to the assembly and the community and the gathering of the people of God. Paul, what, what Paul does here in verse 1 and 2 is a common happening in the book of Acts. I think it's clearly established as a thread for the church that every Christian should always remember that we are tethered to our local body, that we need the encouragement and the strength that God provides in the community of saints. And, and I know, I know we live in a world where we have our Bibles and we have our, you know, we have Bible apps and we have, you know, websites, YouTube, you can go, you can find fellowship, you can, or you can find content and resources all over the place. You can, you know, kind of get in your own private time. You can devote yourself to God and worship God and talk to God. And I know there's all those individualistic paths, but the one thing Acts reminds us is that we are tethered to the local body and we need to be embraced by and to embrace, we need to be encouraged by and encourage one another that we are nothing without our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, maybe you haven't picked up on this, but I want you to notice that this is not just Acts 20. I, wanna, I want you to go back with me. Uh, turn back to Acts 2. Just put a uh, bookmark there in Acts 20. We'll be back there in just a minute. I want to show you, though, um, throughout the book of Acts, how this is a constant theme that Acts does not let us move past with, without, or we should not move past without noticing. Go back to Acts 2. Uh, we've read the scripture again and again and again. Hopefully you know it by now. You've memorized it by now. But Acts 2 verse 42, this is coming off the apostles at Pentecost, Peter and the 11, preaching to the masses. Thousands are saved. Peter is the guy that has everybody's, you know, has the answer for everybody's question. What must we do to be saved? Peter tells them, but right after that amazing outpour into the Holy Spirit and that movement of God and that, you know, Peter preaching to the people there in Jerusalem, it, this is what Luke tells us. And Luke does not want us to, to, to get away from this or to move past this very quickly. Luke 2 verse 42, and they, that's the disciples, the apostles, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is just the teaching of the, of the word, and fellowship. Now, don't you, do you not think that's a big deal that and fellowship is on equal ground with doctrine? 
Do you, not, do you see how that is a, a, a single statement? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers, that, that, that first statement, the teaching of the word is at, as important as that is the fellowship of the saints and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then look at verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, that continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So notice a theme there in these, and you can, it's the whole passage, but 42, 44, and 46. Notice the theme, togetherness, fellowship, one accord. Again, there is something that they were tied to, tethered to, connected to. Over in Acts 4, we see this again. Peter and John barely escape prison. They are released from trial. They're beaten with an inch of their life. But then they return to the assembly of God's people. Acts 4, verse 23. When they are let go, the scripture says, being let go, they went, their own, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they go back and they pour their hearts out to the church. And verse 32 tells us, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And, and again, I'm not going on, this isn't the message about what they did necessarily with their possessions, but it's the fact that they were together, right? They were in a community. They were tethered to each other. Last example I'll show you is Acts 11. Flip over a few more pages. Acts 11, now this is the Antioch church, so we've seen it twice in Jerusalem. We see it again at Antioch. After Barnabas comes and gets the church established in the, uh, in, in the foundation, um, Acts 11 verse 23 says, Barnabas comes and he sees the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue or cling to the Lord. Now down in verse 26 Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So I bring your attention to those scriptures to see how this has been a constant thread throughout the book of Acts. It was the coming together of the saints. It was the gathering together. It was the tethering to one another. We see this again and again. No matter who was the breakout star, they always return to the body, letting us see our own place within the larger body of Christ, the family of God. I think another message in those verses is that after the uproar, every one of those scriptures that we just read, it was after some sort of trial, some sort of turmoil, some sort of uproar. All throughout the book of Acts, that when they go through something, when there's an uproar, when there's a problem, they, cling, they, they immediately get together as the church to pray together, to to fellowship together, to worship together. This life is noisy. A whole lot attempts to drag us down and weigh us down. We may feel like the last thing we want to do is gather with God's people, but that's the one thing we need the most. People in today's world, we're busy and we're com life's complicated and people think, you know what, I just need some time to myself and I, I, you need to prioritize that. You know, people need to take care of themselves, but... We, in a noisy world, in a dragged down, weighed down world, we need to prioritize and make sure that coming together as God's people, and I don't just mean coming together and being present, but making sure that we're postured towards one another 
and that's why it's important that the church be a community. Because we need what is mentioned here twice, encouragement. I want to talk about the Greek word here. We don't do this often, but I think it's important because there's power uh, in the proper perspective of this verse. There's power that I think God wants to give us here. The word for embrace and the word for encourage are the same Greek word. It's the Greek word parakalelo, which para means alongside, kalelo means uh, to call out. That word means to call someone to the witness stand who has a witness that can destroy the accusations of the enemy. The idea of being encouraged in the New Testament is that someone comes alongside you with a voice, with, an, with a word, with a witness that has the power to destroy the accusations and the word from the enemy that is weighing you down. That is how vital encouragement is for the people of God. That is how powerful the, the encouragement is for the people of God. It disarms the voice of the enemy in our lives. That's how powerful your encouragement can be to somebody else. And that's how important someone else's encouragement is for you. Another thing that's big here, the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit is similar. It's the same root word, parakletos or paraclete. You've heard that described. You've heard that as a word for the Holy Spirit. Jesus used this in John 14, John 15, the word comforter, helper, advocate. Now let's tie this together. What did Jesus say about the gathering of God's people? What did Jesus say happens when the people of God get together? What did he say exclusively happens when the people of God get together? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's not saying he's not with you when you're by yourself, but what is he saying here? There is something exclusive and something that you can only experience when you are gathered together in community with the people of God. So when we come together to encourage and receive encouragement, when we, we are calling down the power of heaven, the presence of God, this is a word to Christians that this should weigh on us as we come to church. We do not just come for ourselves. We don't just come with a self-serving attitude. We come to encourage other believers, perhaps a non-believer, but this is not a cafeteria as if we come with a tray ready to fill up what we want to go find a spot in the corner. Maybe if, if you were like me and you're quiet and didn't like people, I, I love people now, but I didn't, I didn't used to like people when I was in high school and I would go to the, to the thing and I would put food on my tray and I'd find the corner of the cafeteria where nobody else was sitting at. And when people would sit down beside me, I would get so angry because I didn't want to be with anybody because I just wanted to be by myself and to unwind. That's just kind of my introverted ways. Um, and I have to work on that still yet. That's just kind of something I struggle with. And we're all wired differently. But church is not a cafeteria where we fill our trays up and find a spot. It's a big family table where we all sit together with our Heavenly Father, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be encouraged and we need to encourage each other. We need to share in each other's ups and downs, bear each other's burdens, lift up each other in prayer. The church cannot and should not entertain any sort of selfishness we are about breaking down those walls and what we see all throughout acts and what we've seen so far is we see a divesting of ourselves into the body of Christ that means divest means to break apart and to mix in divest means you take something that's in that's a whole and you grind it down into the greater body and by doing that you're investing yourself for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ 
That is what we have seen throughout the book of Acts and that is what the church should always be about. This is what it means to be in Christ and to be Christ-like, that we be a people who feed off encouragement and give it out genuinely. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, let your love be genuine. Let love one another with brotherly or sisterly affection is fine. Outdo one another. Now, what does that mean? It's a competition, a submission competition. Now, we all keep score, don't we? Well, you know, I did this for them a couple weeks ago and they haven't even noticed, they haven't recognized, it hasn't done anything to me in return. What does Paul say we should do there? Outdo one. You know what he's saying? He knows our nature. We know our nature. Our nature keeps score. Our nature says I did that for them and they don't even care. I'm not doing it again. But what does Paul say here in this verse? Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that incredible? What if we did this genuinely? How incredible would it be? What kind of culture would we have if we did this genuinely? Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Again, that's genuine. When someone's rejoicing, you are excited for them and with them. When someone's broken, you're broken with them and for them. Live in harmony with one another. You know why it's so important to sing in church? because you are harmonizing with your brother and sister in Christ. You are singing a song that all of us have in common. That's why singing is so important. We learn that we're all on equal ground. You know why it's important to pray together in church? Because you learn that we're all on equal ground. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. As in, it doesn't matter how smart I am. Because my wisdom isn't going to get me anywhere. It's not going to make me a better Christian. What's going to make me a more Christ-like believer is being alongside each and every one of you. Now, this is what our goal should be, to harmonize, with our, harmonize ourselves, with, which comes from our commitment to each other. We should look around and ask ourselves, what can I do to encourage my brother and sister in Christ? Now, in these next few verses, Luke's going to mention some people that otherwise are forgotten in the story of God, but they are so important. Verses 3 or verses 4 through 6, listen to Luke give some uh, shout outs to some people that we've never heard about and will never hear about again. These are people that were with Paul during this season of his ministry. Sopatar of Berea accompanied him in Asia. Aristarchus and Sesundus of, Thessalon- of, of the Thessalonians. Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia. Now, all of those cities that we just read there, Berea back in chapter 17, Thessalonica back in chapter 17, Derby back in chapter 14, uh, Asia referencing uh, Ephesus back in chapter 19. These are people that joined Paul's team throughout the last 10 years. And Luke says these especially were there for Paul. These are people that went above and beyond encouraging him and being encouraged by him. As the chapter goes on, we hear repeated reminders about the vital importance the church has become to those who were saved. Verse seven says, on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Again, we hear this coming together, but we, hear, we find now they have designated a specific time to where they come together. 
The early on in Acts, they gathered together on the Sabbath day because that was the Jewish tradition, the Saturday. They continued that old tradition that they had been brought up in because at the time, Christianity was still a very much Jewish sect. But at this point, it's more than just Jewish, it's Gentiles as well. They're no longer tethered to that old Sabbath law, but they are still prioritizing a specific time, a specific day to gather together with the people of God, to break bread together and to hear the message from God's man. And of course, this message lasted until midnight. What does it say? Paul was ready to part the next day, spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. So they didn't just come together for one hour. They came together for the whole day. Maybe this, maybe this was just a one-time thing. I don't know, but I'm going to take it for a little, take it as a little bit more than that. I want to quickly mention about the day here. Um, again, this doesn't mean that the Sabbath law came forward to the New Testament because if it was, it would be on Saturday and there would be a whole lot of other things going on as part of the Jewish Sabbath tradition. Keep in mind, the Sabbath law is fulfilled in Jesus for Christians, not a day. We, we, aren't, we don't find rest in a day, we find rest in a person. Jesus is our rest. So let me just make it very clear. They didn't come together on the first day of the week because they felt like they were obligated to that certain day. They were obligated to Jesus. They were committed to Jesus. And because of that, they gave him a day because they knew that he deserved more than that. But they gave him a day to where they could come together and worship together and gather together and fellowship together. We need that same kind of cornerstone as a part of our, day, or part of our weekly lives as Christians. As Christianity took over the Roman world, Christianity shaped the Roman world as it was, and Sundays became a day of worship. And, and what we learn about in Acts and moving forward, the church gathering was an appointment. Do you see that? It was an appointment that they did not miss. And again, this isn't just about 11 o'clock. This is about the gathering together, the fellowship that was, that was gotten from the church. They were committed to coming together for worship and fellowship. It was an appointment. Something as valuable to our souls as church should be prioritized and thank God for the biblical precedent that leads us to meeting on the Lord's Day and on Sunday to keep, this, to keep our weeks anchored around Him and His promise. Now, this little story is a little bit, it's kind of humorous. Uh, there's a guy who goes up to a window to sit because he's hot. There's a lot of lamps in the room and, it's, and it's, he needs a window to breathe. And Paul's preaching all night. So he goes up high and he falls asleep anyway and falls down. It's kind of a neat story. Uh, there's not much there for us uh, in terms of our message tonight. Uh, but again, Eutychus goes up and sits by a window, falls asleep, falls down. Paul says, don't worry, lays hands on him and heals him. But what I think is most remarkable about this story and about that episode, and in, in verse 11, after Paul raises the man back up to life, look at what verse 11 says. Now, when he had come up, as when, when he came back to life, had broken bread and eaten, talked a long while, even till daybreak. So what's remarkable is the guy could not keep his eyes open. He was sleepy. Paul raises him back up. And what does he continue doing? Back to what they got together for the first, in the first place to do worshiping together, breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, showing us what was on the hearts of every believer. It was core to who they were. They were committed. Now, in closing, I want to look at Paul's gathering with the Ephesian elders down in verse 17. Uh, Paul knows that he's not going to be back in this territory. He's not going to see these people again. 
So he gathers together the elders of this community, of the churches in Asia, the churches in Turkey. Uh, He gathers together the leaders there, and he gives them a send-off. He gives them a word as he's kind of passing the torch, because the, the precedent that he set for us in this chapter and before, the precedent of encouraging each other, the precedent of gathering together and the appointment of coming together, the precedent of the church community and the commitment to the church, Paul wants to make sure that the next generation of leaders have that same mentality that he has had throughout the years. Down in verse 17, it says, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, elders in the Bible is not about age. Elders in the Bible is a Greek word that you're probably, you've probably heard before, presbyteros, which doesn't mean any, have anything to do with a denomination. That's a Greek word that means overseer, shepherd, or pastor. So elder, again, doesn't mean age. It means position of leadership. Uh, and he calls together the different elders from the different churches in this region. Now, Paul first speaks of his own trajectory before talking about their position as the next generation of leaders. So listen from verse 18 forward. As Paul looks back at what he's done, he's going to leave them some breadcrumbs for what they should be all about and what they should prioritize. He says, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews, also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound to Jerusalem, bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So what is Paul doing in this, in this gathering? He's making sure these church leaders know what he has made the main things and what they should continue to make the main things, that the church may be as healthy in the future as it was as he left it. Three things he gives us here. Verse 19, he outlines the qualifications of leadership. Verse 20, he outlines the obligations of leadership. In verse 21, he outlines the ambitions of leadership. Now, I don't just mean preachers like me. Of course, it starts with me. But this is about anybody in the church that wants to be more than just coming and going. You want to be a committed member. You want to be a committed participant of the local church. We need to meet these qualifications. We need to follow these obligations. And we need these ambitions in our hearts. In verse 19... Paul highlights his own uh, attributes that I believe are qualifications for any church leader. He says, I've served the Lord with humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to, be pl- happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. But he goes on to say, those things did not hold me back. I continue to proclaim to you and talk publicly from house to house. So if we want to be leaders in the church, we need these three qualifications, humility, humility, passion and perseverance 
Humility as in we need to be humble. We need to be lowly. We need to put ourselves below others. We need to put ourselves underneath others. We need to put ourselves to the service of others. That if we have a heart that is humble, we are qualified to be leaders in the local church. We are qualified and capable of being leaders in the movement of God. We have to have passion in our hearts. We can't do this without genuine passion. And how do we get that passion? That comes by praying to God to give us a heart like nothing else. That praying to God to give us a passionate spirit for him and his kingdom more than we are passionate for anything else. And we've got to have perseverance because this world will wear us down. We've got to be committed to persevere and endure in spite of the trials that will come our way. I pray for God to keep these three things at 10 in my heart every day. Because if I'm not humble and if I'm not passionate and if I can't persevere, then I will never amount to anything as a church leader, as an overseer, as a shepherd. These three things are so important. They're so vital for the church. If you read the pastoral epistles, Paul doubles down on these qualifications. But the big deal is that the leaders would model them so that the whole church would adopt them. It's not so that some are held to these and others aren't. It's that leadership is supposed to make the standard all the way down to every layperson. Humility, passion, perseverance, we all need them. Verse 20 alludes to the obligations of leadership, to teach that which is profitable. He said, I've kept nothing back, but I proclaim to you, I've taught publicly that which was helpful or that which is profitable. What does that speak of? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So what is our source? What is our resource? The word of God. That we don't have to look for methods of the world. We don't have to go go find help through some other means. The word of God is the only resource that we use and it's the one thing that is profitable to complete us and equip us for every good work. So we see what the qualifications are. We see what, the, uh, we see what God has called all of us to do and all of us to be about. But we also see the ambitions that we must have in our hearts, our intentions, verse 21, calling people to repentance and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what is our ambition as, as leaders in the church? To call people to repent of sin and self and to put their faith in Jesus. We have a simple message. Our sin is keeping us from God. Ourself is keeping us from God. We need to repent of that and trust in and turn to and lean on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Every message, every song, every mission, every service is about this agenda. The intention behind leadership is to bring all people to be emptied of sin, emptied of self and filled with Jesus. In verse 22, Paul says, I'm bound by the Spirit to do these things and go from here as every leader is, as every church member is. Paul took so seriously and sacredly the local church, and he is calling on this next generation to do as well. In closing, look look at verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, the she- to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among you, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn every night and day with tears. 
So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way my laboring like this, that you must support the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So in these verses, Paul submits a culture of vigilance and graciousness. Vigilance is that we cannot let our guards down, church. The world is trying to make us disciples of all the wrong things. We as God's people must be vigilant as there are plenty that are trying to come in into the church and around us in our lives. We must be vigilant and focused that lest we be led astray by what, that which is false. And verse 32 through 35 is all about the church maintaining a heart of kindness and generosity, not allowing anything to burn them out or burn us out or embitter us towards one another. Paul says, I've always kept it about being generous, being kind, being gracious, because Jesus made it very clear, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. After he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And verse 37 says, they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to his ship. These folks had learned to love and rely on Paul. He was in many ways their living New Testament having shared with them the truths of God, the mysteries of the gospel, and they were left well-equipped to carry on the movement just like we have been. I don't know why they wept. Maybe they were just sad to see him go. Maybe they knew they weren't ready. If we know anything about the church at Ephesus, Paul would write a letter to them. He, John would write three letters to them. Timothy or Paul would write two letters to Timothy to them. And then, of course, we read about this in Revelation. What was John's word? What was Jesus's word through John to the church at Ephesus? They left their first love. I don't know if there's a through line there, but I do know that they were well equipped to carry the torch forward. Whether they did it or not, uh, we'll find out one day in heaven. But we ourselves have been left with the same commission. And even though seasons change and even though circumstances vary, the movement continues, the mission remains, the power and purpose of the local church is unchanging, it's forever. We are still a part of this same movement, carrying forward this same mission. We ourselves must heed Paul's warnings, his commandments. We must continue the traditions established in this book, underscored in this chapter. Acts will always remind us the importance of the local church, the blessing that is available to us as members of it. Thank God for the grace he has given us, the gift of his local church, the ability to carry on his plans in our own local way. Sometimes I think people probably think I'm a little extreme about the church and about the importance of the local church. Um, as a pastor of the church and as commissioned to lead the church, hearing what Paul said to the leaders in that text, hearing how Paul lived his life for the local church, I don't see how there's any other way. I don't see how there's any uh, more appropriate way than to make it our everything. How blessed we are to enjoy this privilege. How much more blessed will we be if we continue to give our lives away pursuing its growth?
Church, we stand on the shoulders of giants, not those that were renowned by the world, but those that were committed and faithful to the kingdom's cause. In Acts 20, we get a few mention of a few people that we'll never hear about again. Yet they were mentioned by Luke as some of the pillars in the movement that Paul established and that the churches that he planted. The torch has been passed to us. We carry the torch that those elders were given to carry. And we have more than enough reasons to continue to keep that flame bright and to continue to keep that movement going for this generation and for the ones that come. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege you've given us as members of your church. Thank you for this time to reflect, this time to look back at what we've learned so far in Acts and to look forward at what we're going to learn still yet. And God, you've established it very clearly what the local church is all about. It's about a community. It's about fellowship. It's about being committed to something that's bigger than just our own lives and for our own selves. It's about being a part of something that is building towards eternity. God, thank you for the encouragement that we find from each other. Thank you for the embrace that we feel from one another. Thank you for helping us see that we're a part of something much larger than our own lives. God, would you use us in a mighty way to carry this torch, to fan this flame? Would you use us, Lord, and equip us to be leaders with the right ambition in a world that is led astray by so many things? Lord, may we continue to point people towards Jesus and his church. God, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for the blessing that it is to receive from you. How much more blessed is it for us to give as you've given to us? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.